0: Whether you are a loved one, a professional working in the field, or a person diagnosed with an AI arthritis disease, this podcast is for you. So pull up a chair and take a seat at the table.
1: Welcome to AI Arthritis Voices 360. This is the official talk show for the International Foundation for Autoimmune and Autoinflammatory Arthritis, or AI Arthritis for short. My name is Tiffany Westrich robertson I am the CEO of the organization, but I am also a person living with those diseases. So my primary is non-radiographic axial spondyloarthritis. <laughs> well, I kind of <laughs> ran out of breath there, <laughs> And and a few others, depending on what chart you look at or who you talk to, but comorbidities run rampant, which is kind of fitting in what we're going to talk about today. And yes, I did say we, but we are going to talk about today because I am not alone. I have a friend, a new friend, matter of fact, me. with me, Catherine. Hey, Catherine.
2: Hey, Tiffany. Hi, this is Catherine Ames here. So glad to be with you today.
1: I'm so glad that you are with me as well. I mean, new friends, like a week old friends.
2: <laughs> yeah, like literally a week old, but it feels like we've known each other for a lot longer than that.
1: Yeah. So so Catherine, tell everyone a little bit about yourself.
2: Yeah, so I am a 23-year-old college student living in Southern California. I am a student, a columnist, a patient advocate, a writer, speaker, friend, daughter, all those things, but I also live with auto inflammatory and autoimmune conditions. So lupus, fibromyalgia, and immune deficiency, you know, chronic pain, chronic migraine, you know, inflamed musculoskeletal issues, just the long list of things that, (laughs) that seems to keep getting longer, but definitely feel the pain, literal and physical metaphorical of this community. So very happy to be in, in shared company in that way. Yes,
1: absolutely. So This was already planned, already, this was the topic that ARthritis had chosen to feature for the month of June, which is about everyone, and I'm saying one is capital O-N-E, everyone's voices matter. What we're talking about really focuses in on the importance of all people to be able to come forward and have their opinions their perspectives, their experiences counted, whether that is in a rant that you do or it's official research. It's important to share your feelings, your needs, your challenges, because all of those types of things are eventually taken and collected. And that's the kind of stuff that helps drive the outcomes when problems are solved, when legislation happens, what we're going to study and research, what kind of awareness we need. It all really factors into if you're not talking, if you're not submitting your, those opinions or your needs, Mm -hmm. they just might not be considered, right? When, when everyone else is moving forward and we're talking about access and what type of treatments we may be able to be on or what works best for what person, we all need to be sort of included. And that's, the really heart and soul of AR arthritis and what we do. And when I met Catherine, I found out we had that in common because she's done a lot of work too in young persons connecting to research. And I just wanted you to mm-hmm. tell us a little bit about that first, Catherine.
2: Yeah, so I'm here representing the young patients area and area stands for Autoimmune Research and Empowerment Alliance. And we're essentially an advocacy organization that Seeks to make sure that the voices of young patients, so uh, our group is 16 to 23, is considered and that there's input from young people in all areas of healthcare, but specifically in research spaces. So making sure that there's research done by us, for us, making sure that researchers are considering the voices of young patients, like you said, their needs, their wants when doing research about our specific demographic. We are composed of people who have autoimmune conditions, everything from Crohn's and and IBD to lupus and JRA. And so we're really here to try and make a difference in in the research space and ultimately disseminate research that's meaningful to young people so that young people feel empowered in the doctor's office to take control of their own care. But research can be really sterile and confusing. And I mean, there's no incentive to a 16-year-old to read a 70-page research paper. Like they want to see a TikTok about what the research found, and they want to be able to take that information and come to their doctor with questions and be well-informed so that down the line, when they were 16, they can say, man, I'm really glad I had that information and came to my doctor with those questions because now I'm 20 and I feel empowered in my healthcare. I feel you know, empowered to ask questions, to challenge doctors, to get second opinions, and I know where to get the most up-and-coming research about my condition. I know how to stay informed. So that's who I'm representing today. And we're going to get into talking about precision medicine and what the difference between personalized medicine is and, and hopefully how that can affect young people, but then also, you know, just the AI arthritis community in general too, and provide some education that we got at a conference we went to yes. last week when we met. Yes. Yes. <laughs> great. So
1: you can see, I think very clearly why I decided, okay, it's last minute. And I literally text her, what was <laughs> it, yesterday the day before? I said, okay, well, so...
2: <laughs> so, can we chat?
1: Um, I have an opportunity here that just kind of fell into place. And I thought you would be the perfect person to jump on and do this. So anyway, yes, we met last week. And in keeping... With the topic of this month, which is really everyone's voices count. And we're talking really about our personal journeys and how those tie into research and access to therapies, whether that's, that's pharmacologic or non-pharmacologic, which I'll explain here the difference, and also how that information or how precision medicine and the matching a person to the right treatment at the right time for our mm-hmm. own individual needs yeah. is so important to also influencing public policy which is legislation cuz that type of thing whether wherever you are living in the world if that's your government who decides your access if that's your insurance company who decides your access whomever that is who's deciding all of this ties together it's one big symphony really yeah. and that's something we're going to dive into so Catherine and I met at a conference called the 16th Annual Precision Medicine Conference that was in Dana Point, California last week. We, as members of the Personalized Medicine Coalition, they were sponsors of this, and we both got to go on scholarships as yeah. persons living with the diseases, which is also very yeah, nice. So that was nice. <laughs> it was nice. So that was, that was a perk. So... I want to first preface by saying, just at our organization, if you've listened to some of these shows, we do talk about this often. We separate the two terms, personalized and precision, which many people, many locations, they sit still intertwined, and that's fine. But when we started on a journey in some advisory panels that we have been part of for the last three or four years, and these panels have been suggesting precision is really about the biomarkers, blood, genetics, your DNA, whereas personalized falls more into what you prefer mm-hmm. and what works, but could be non-pharmacologic. So diet, yeah. exercise, working with their doctor to decide if I want a pill or an infusion. That that all falls into my personal experience. So, mm-hmm. so even though the conference was personalized medicine. That's what it's called. I'm going to move yes. forward. We're going to move forward and say precision so that we don't confuse what we're talking about here. Mm-hmm. So the conference was predominantly cancer, persons yes. living with cancer. No,
2: and, that was, it was it was more than predominantly cancer. <laughs> I said it 90% was, to some 90, people. 90% cancer.
1: Uh, and and why, so why were, oh, So why were Catherine and I there? You ask if it was ninety percent cancer. I did you want to weigh in on that? Because I'll weigh in on it as well. If you had, yeah,
2: sure. So I guess I genuinely went into this thinking that the conference would largely be about people like me who have gone four or five years, literally just experimenting with treatments to find what works for me. Thinking that I was going to be the guinea pig for some of these nonprofits private companies private healthcare companies and doctors who want to solve problem patients like me who don't necessarily have a diagnosis or for the purpose of insurance I have lupus and then I got there and it was mostly about cancer which makes sense because precision medicine really originated at excising a tumor sequencing the genetics of that tumor going in and changing out the part of the gene sequence that was mutated and then creating treatments from that, or looking at what kind of cancer you have, sequencing the, your DNA and deciding what best cancer treatment to give you. Mostly because cancer research and cancer treatment and just the world of cancer, one has so much funding and money and visibility, but you know, research has been along around a lot longer than let's say like lupus research or arthritis research or... It just has a huge spotlight on it, so it made sense. But I was, I was, I was a little disappointed to see that there wasn't more representation for other conditions besides besides cancer. But then, when I understood the history, it made a little, it made more sense to me.
1: There you go. And so I will build on to what Catherine said. So our organization started really getting invested in precision medicine around 2015. And at the time, a lot of people in the autoimmune space were saying, what are you all doing? Why would you even spend your time here? Because precision medicine isn't going to get to immunology in the yeah. autoimmune or auto-inflammatory space for at least a decade. So they're saying yeah. 2025 or so. And maybe, maybe that was right, but As our mission is to talk to people and learn from our own needs, we recognized very early on, we all are individual, no one-size-fits-all pill that's going to, you know, what what works for you may not work for me, all of those things, because autoimmune, auto-inflammatory arthritis diseases are very unique per the individual. And knowing that, we realized, okay, it is in the cancer space now. But yeah. it will be in our space eventually. So why mm-hmm. not start learning about what's happening, the challenges, the barriers, the successes, because that knowledge will only help us when we're ready to start the research and when we're ready to start the yeah. public policy. Right. Yeah. So I went in actually opposite because I knew 100% I was going in and I was maybe yeah. going to be the only autoimmune. So again, I was so excited to find Catherine because there were not yeah. many of
2: us. <laughs> no, there really weren't. There are were definitely, there are a lot of people who live with cancer or were in remission, but there are a few RA patients there. I spoke with a few sort of question mark patients too. But I was really glad that we connected because I was like someone else who is here on the same mission, fact-finding mission that I am.
1: And that's exactly why we were there. Arthritis, we, several of us go to conferences for different reasons. Sometimes like the one we're going to here in a week, ULAR, is the Rheumatology Convention Conference, the biggest one in Europe. And that is all about rheumatology. But this one really was about fact-finding. That's why I yeah. wanted to go. I wanted to be able to learn and report back to our community some of the most important things that we need to know as it does trickle down into our community. And that's what everyone yeah. needs to understand. What we're learning now that's happening in the cancer space is going to be very relevant into Mm -hmm. what's happening. And there is research that has started. We at our organization have seen many studies in precision medicine at both the American College of Rheumatology annual scientific meeting every November, and then this one in Europe every June. Mm -hmm. And it only started, again, like two years ago, and it takes a little bit of time for everything to ramp up, but it's there. And we're excited yeah. because as people living with the diseases, we need to understand. Well, first, what's happening in the research world? And then two, how can we get involved in it and how is it important to me? So there were a couple big picture. Ideas that I are yes. not idea takeaways, I guess that Catherine and I talked about, and I'm going to throw out one, and then I'm going to pass the baton, and she's going to throw out one.
2: But Perfect.
1: one of the things that it was the opening, actually, it was the the opening keynote speaker, yeah. and and she was talking about how they are doing something innovative because precision medicine is fairly new. And when anything is new, it just takes a while. And one of the things that she mm-hmm. said as we are teaching the Food and Drug Administration, that would be the FDA or in the United States who regulates treatments in medicines and devices. And so that would be the European Medicines Agency in Europe. I always like to make sure I'm referencing international since we're international in scope. But she said, we, when you are doing something innovative, you cannot follow the traditional rules, and you must teach people a new way of doing it. And I loved that. And so I said, okay, so we need to start listening so that we, as it moves into the auto space, that we can start thinking about the rules, taking what we're learning from what's happening now and apply it. So that was the first thing. And then the second thing was they were talking about how much they have learned in the cancer space with genetic testing and access to getting these tests done where patients are able to see, wow, this medication might work best for me based on my genetic signature or my response to the way this medication is working. And the big thing they said, which I had an aha moment, is they said some of these genetic tests and these treatments, knowing what works best for the individual person can stop the cancer from mutating. And I said to myself, "I will." I didn't say it out loud because that would have been really, <laughs> really tacky, yeah, but... <laughs> But I wrote it down here. I said, for us, that's comorbidities. I even drew a little picture. I drew like a little circle of your original disease. And then I wrote inflammation. And then I have a lot of little dots. And yeah. it's the same idea. Wow, I thought. If we had something that could intervene early enough, yeah. then we're preventing comorbidity. And then also that drastically increases our chance of remission, which unfortunately, we do not hear that word very often.
2: No, we certainly do not. Yeah.
1: And, and so those were sort of my first aha moments.
2: I think I was also like, you just shared in a space of like really listening to what leaders in this space are forecasting long, like down the line or not down the line, like in the near future for the entire healthcare system. And and these were people who were talking about who were admitting faults of the U S health healthcare system left and right and putting forth ways to implement change, right? They weren't just talking about, well, we have this new great thing called precision medicine and this is why it's great, ta-da. On every panel there, people were like, this is how we are literally implementing it in community settings. That was my big, I don't know, that's why I had my detective hat on is I was like, okay, this all sounds great in theory, this idea of precision medicine, and it makes a lot of sense in cancer, but shouldn't everybody have access to this kind of care? Like, why is it restricted to cancer? And and what I learned and what my major takeaway was, is that the precision medicine space was born in the cancer space, but is intended to be expanded to the entire healthcare space. And what I mean by that is, what I gathered is that the intention of precision medicine is to be let's let's give a real world example here right so you go to your doctor let's say when you're I don't know when you're going through puberty right 16 17 sometimes younger and let's say you have a history of cancer in your family that's not just something that gets put on your record and when you when you turn 30 and maybe you get receive a cancer diagnosis you're like oh that was on my record when I was younger but no one ever did anything about it What precision medicine is trying to do is go so far upstream to any condition that you might be predisposed to, and saying, when you're young, we're going to sequence your genetics. We're going to tell you what you might be predisposed to, so that one, we can get you the right treatment if this condition starts to cause problems for you or if you develop this condition. But two, we're also trying to be pragmatic about why this kind of medicine would be advantageous to the payers and the shareholders in the American healthcare system. So what I mean by that is, if you get, you know, sequence when you're young and they say, oh, you're predisposed to breast cancer. Well, you can be looking out for that with a simple blood test for most of your life and save payers and shareholders and insurance companies a ton of money instead of when you're 30 getting a breast cancer diagnosis and you're stage three or four, And now you're paying out the wazoo for treatment that one may or may not be the right one for you because precision medicine can sequence you and tell you exactly which treatment is right for you. But two, you're not wasting a lot of time and money on treatments that will ultimately fail you and or worsen your condition. The whole idea is to just forego all of the downstream issue by going upstream and saying when you're young, when you're maybe even in pediatric care or transitional healthcare, adolescent healthcare, we're going to tell you what you need to be looking out for, so that one, you save a lot of money for payers and sh- shareholders and people who have stock in healthcare who just you know want to make money. Which is another conversation, which is problematic that people have. A, you know, uh, they are bad actors in healthcare, and that's true. But just to make our lives easier, like, wouldn't it be so simple if someone was like, hey? seems like you have, you know, your condition, Tiffany, that that really might start to rear its head, maybe in your 20s or your 30s. And we're going to prepare for that by kind of slowly testing your genetics over the course of a couple of years to just prepare if this is, you know, this is a possibility, how we would treat you and what would be the best treatment for you. So that was my, that was a long winded way of my takeaway uh, of saying that my takeaway is that Precision medicine is ultimately the ship is steering towards making this available for the masses, and that's where I was like, oh, that really caught my ear because that that's what makes the most sense to me. That's mm-hmm. where this medicine makes the most sense to me. But it's got to start someplace, and it's starting small. That's how everything starts. It's small. Like you can't just Im- you can't implement this overnight until it's been vetted and tested and researched and experimented on. So while this is all really great, innovative, amazing, cutting-edge science that's happening. It's not quite ready for everyone yet, which is the other takeaway. Is I was like, oh, this isn't quite ready for our population yet, but we don't necessarily want to jump the gun. Right. And the
1: best part is really in saying that, Catherine, which I, I don't know if you realized or did not realize, but that was one of the things that made me so excited about being there because You and I and any of the other people that were there from the auto world, the auto auto inflammatory world, we're in the beginning. We're seeing it at a part where it's being birthed. And the knowledge that we are obtaining and then being able to pass on to everyone else why this is so important to be able to get behind or to understand is really important. I'm going to make a, a parallel. I'm going to add again to what Catherine said. So she was talking about... The way that this precision medicine, which again, we're talking about in this case, genetic testing, or in some cases, it can be your blood work, for example, rheumatoid arthritis. We know from research that we've been seeing at different scientific meetings that if you have certain, like an RA positive, Factor and ANCA positive. There's certain blood markers that if you're positive in rheumatoid arthritis, it shows that you're more likely to have worse disease than somebody yeah. without those. So there's an example if you've heard that before. So yeah. the other thing that so we that's good. So we, it is definitely underway, and we're we're there. And that's a little bit they and I kind of laugh when they do this, but the sessions are often called prevention, and I was like. Nah, I don't know if we yeah. want to go there, but <laughs> yeah. okay. Anyway, so as we're talking about this matching the treatment and why the insurance companies or the governments or the people who are trying to ration all healthcare dollars or pesos or wh- whatever your, yeah. your, your translation is Pounds. there. Uh, yes. Yeah. So however your healthcare system is trying to ration those for all people, which all of them must do. And that's why we have to keep the cost down. We cannot escape the fact that in our community, when we talk about biologics or disease modifying Mm -hmm. agents, those more higher priced treatments, which are often the second line, in some cases, first line, or Mm -hmm. third line, but they're in there. They're in the beginning often to help us get our diseases under control so that we have the highest potential to go into remission. That's why they Mm -hmm. want them to be treated early. Studies have shown that, that earlier the treatment, the higher chance you have of remission. Right now, only about 30 to 40 percent of us are going to have really great responses to those treatments once they get to market. And why is that? It is because the clinical trials, when they're trying to reach a general patient population, they need to recruit, well, people that seem textbook, people that seem to, and they have to meet these certain inclusion criteria. It may say you have to have rheumatoid factor positive. It may say you have to have an inflammation level of this. And Mm -hmm. for me, I've never had inflammation levels ever that have shown up. It doesn't mean that I don't have a disease. I do, clearly. But that's just as an example, I wouldn't be able to be in that trial. Yet, Mm -hmm. my healthcare group that is deciding what is going to be preferred for me is telling me, well, even though you didn't make it into that trial or you couldn't have, you still have to use that because- We believe it's safe and effective for you, even though you don't match the criteria that was measured during that study. Yeah, That's why we're looking at precision medicine, because exactly what you said, Catherine, it is such a waste of money when we have to trial and error, because the other thing, our treatments, they take three to six months to work.
2: Yeah. And it's such a human, there's such a human cost to that too. I mean, there's, some of these treatments that you experiment with some of the treatments that I've had to experiment with because I haven't dabbled in, or I haven't been, I haven't been able to access pharmacogenomics, which is something that we'll talk about Mm -hmm. in in this podcast as well. It's just been trial and error. And there's a human cost to that. Like my body has been so beaten down by some of these treatments that we think are going to work for me. And three to six months in either can't take it anymore, or it just hasn't done anything. And my disease is now out of control because we've, we've given it, we've given my body a treatment that is ineffective. And therefore my disease has just started to run rampant. So there's also a human cost to kind of this one size fits all healthcare system, which is different than step therapy and step therapy is another conversation, which is also really inefficient, but you know, even if that biologic doesn't work for you and we don't have another blood test to determine which, which one you should try next, we're kind of stuck with, okay, well, I I guess you can try this one next. And if that doesn't work, then, well, I guess you can try this one next. And suddenly you're going through four or five biologics in the course of a couple of years that are all doing harm, unnecessary harm to your body. And Wouldn't it be so great if you could just have, you know, some basic genetic testing done to determine what drugs work best for your body? And then you wouldn't be, you know, costing insurance hundreds of thousands of dollars, just, you know, like a kid in the candy store, just trying each biologic. And not to mention it takes months, years sometimes to get those approved, to even access that care. So that's years of your life that you might be able to get back. If if you could just, you know, ha- if there are more biomarkers, a bigger bi- database of biomarkers so that if you got blood work done or genetic testing done, you could go to this big old database of people who are getting blood work all the time, who are like, oh, look at these thousands of people who benefited from, you know, Benlista rather than Safnello because their biomarker was XYZ. You fit that category. You should try Benlista before Safnello. You know, stuff as simple as that, and it makes so much logical sense, but again, this is area of medicine that uh, us getting behind, and when I say us, the auto community, getting behind this, even though it seems like it's predominantly for the oncology space, is important because this research is going to, like you said, impact everyone. Every one person will be benefited by this precision medicine in the long term. And this advancements for what seems like a small group—not a small group, but um, for cancer patients. This advancements for cancer patients is advancements for really everyone. So that was something that I was like, "Wow, this is this is much bigger than I had anticipated coming into this conference." And this is information that we need to tell it, we need to share with everyone that these advancements for. The few are really advancements for the many are in our investment in our long-term health outcomes that don't seem immediately apparent, but are already starting to sprout. So
1: 100%. I'm going to, again, build on, see, this is great. We're just building right off of each other. We really this, are. We're, we
2: we're are, building a we are good. house here. We are
1: we're good. We're
2: building a mansion. We're building a Ritz-Carlton. <laughs>
1: We are. Okay. So as you're talking about the importance of everyone, as we keep referring to, and you said, you know, this small group of people and maybe it's a certain treatment, treatment XYZ is working very well for them. And you might be one of those people. Well, one of the things that we really encourage, at least at AI Arthritis, is to get involved, which is what I know you do too, Catherine, is to mm-hmm. get involved in research. So our organization is, shout out to Forward National Data Bank for Rheumatic Diseases. They have been so kind and gracious over the last few years. They believe so much in the work we're doing, particularly in this arena, that they are have built, and it will be launching very soon here, uh, probably in the next couple of months, our own AI Arthritis Data Bank. And it will live inside of theirs, inside of their servers. They w- We will have our oh, own awesome. link. And I know. And so so awesome. with that, we are encouraging people to sign up to learn more about us. You can go to our website at arthritisorg backslash research. And we have a form where you can sign up to get more involved in any of our research efforts. I'll mention that again at the end of the show, in case you were trying to write that down or something. But one of the things that is really important is even if you can do small efforts, like if you have certain blood tests and you upload them into a data bank and you're, it's all private information. I wouldn't know who you were. You're, you, you know, you're, it's de-identified mm-hmm. in there. But when people are more involved in databases and making sure that their data is in a larger space with everyone else's, is that small group gets just a little bit bigger. And yeah. when it's a little bit bigger, guess what? There's more data, and the data is what drives our access. So yeah, that was a
2: huge, huge point that it, every everyone was making at the, the keynotes and the conference.
1: One hundred percent. Need more
2: data. We need more data in order to make decisions because we were in really good hands, right? Like these are really incredibly intelligent people who are had the best of intentions for healthcare but they're saying, please, we need more data because as scientists, we will not claim things that are not investigated and researched and tested. And so they're saying, well, we need more data to do the, this testing. We need more data in order to make informed decisions and recommendations, but they're like, we're not gonna, well, we won't do that until we have more data. So, so uh, yeah, anyways, uh, go ahead, but, I'll <laughs> let you finish your thought. but <laughs> that's why I was like, Oh, that makes a lot of sense, but it can be really hard for patients to hear that and say, okay, well all of this sounds great, but like I still can't get a basic blood pressure medication covered or all that sounds great. But like, I can't even get a CT without getting a $5,000 bill. Like the concept of precision medicine sounds fantastic, but they're like very practical very simple barriers like access to reproductive health care right now, especially, that seem to be insurmountable for patients with very basic conditions like high blood pressure. So that was my other, I don't know, my takeaway from this conference is I was a little, that that would be my one critique is I was like, okay, but how do I get access to this, right? It's all pretty much in private health care right now. Um, And there are people who are trying to make this easier to access, like companies like Geno Medical and the Gilead Company. But I was like, "Mm, this all sounds great, but I have a friend who can't get an MRI because her student health insurance is giving her grief because of whatever reason, they just woke up on the wrong side of the bed. So how do we even convince people to give up their health health information, or to participate in this kind of data driven research and this data data driven precision medicine, if they've lost trust in the healthcare system, if they think that the doctors are you know the trolls under the bridge here, when really it's insurance and I don't know, I don't know if you have thoughts about that, but that was my only kind of critique. Because I was like, all oh, this sounds great, but how I'm going to walk out of this conference and I want to go get this stuff done to me. Where do I go? Who do I go to? Uh, The only way I could have conversations with these people who do this testing was to apply for a scholarship to be in the literal same room as them and ask them, hi, my name's Catherine. How do I get this testing done that your company does? I don't know if you have thoughts on that, but that was my one qualm. So I was like, okay, I'm leaving and now I want this done and it sounds great, but where do I go?
1: Okay. I do have thoughts on that. As they talked about in the conference for, we're kind of talking about it ourselves, but this is for all of you who were not there as well. Mm -hmm. And that there was a lot of talk about these different tests different genetic yeah. tests where they could be home kits. They, they referred it actually oh, they, yeah, up yeah, to, yeah. to COVID and they said so there was learning lessons from COVID, which I just thought was really brilliant about e really you know, health yeah. and some, and, and different barriers to access that has opened up because of that. And one of the things they talked about were the 15 minute tests that we all got and so now there's a lot of rethinking about these tests and wow wouldn't it be great if there could if there were some options and this think see how we're talking here if there were if so these are still some brainstorming period that we're in with right right now but one of the takeaways with that too they talked a lot was clinical access or clinical decision, being able to have this in a clinical setting, which is currently, there are barriers to that in the cancer space. So yeah. what I'd encourage, this is my, these, this is my kind of my response to what your concern is, yeah, Catherine, is there are so many different issues in our healthcare system and they're different issues for different people, right? We, there are people who are in Medicare, Medicaid in the United States could be on because they're on disability or aging. There's different healthcare care barriers in other countries based on many factors. There is yeah. something that uh, value frameworks or value assessments, you could call them many things, health technology assessments. They have so many names that, but that's essentially the way that a lot of companies are hired to review data to make sure that the cost associated with the treatment is valuable. And I'm putting my fingers in air quotes because what is value, who tells us what is valuable to us. Right. So that's a, that's a whole 360 in itself, along with step therapy, which you mentioned, we will be doing one on that. But the point is that there are such layers to, access. There's so many yeah. layers that we're talking about here. And I'm going to separate for a second from from here when we're ta- going back to just the precision medicine and I'll circle back here to the to how this wraps around is what's happening now in regards to access whether that is able to access your MRI, whether that is able to access the treatment that your doctor prescribed you, whatever that is, that access. So I'm going to, I'm going to put it in the access bubble. (laughs) Okay. So let's just put all of those things in the access bubble. What's driving all of that is the need to lower costs.
2: Yeah.
1: It's the need to control high cost of healthcare, no matter where you live. So this is relevant everywhere. So that's the big picture here. That's what's driving all of this. So Now, look. Think of it in compartments. So, the issue with MRI access is more of an individual barrier issue right now. That organizations like AI Arthritis, Arthritis Foundation,al National National Psoriasis, you know, ULR Parry, the all of us are trying to work on to gain laws and legislation to make sure we all have access for all people. So that is an access issue. And I would say that's more of an access, direct access, where you want to get in. If you're listening, you get involved with as many patient organizations as you can so that your voice counts when there are laws, where there are regulations, where they're listening and saying, hey, I can't get an MRI and here's why talking to your local legislator, your government, whomever that is, they may not really understand, but when they hear the patient voice and the cries from us saying, I need this or I couldn't do this, that's what makes impact. So in thinking of the bigger picture here, the reason why we're talking about precision medicine and the importance of it, and when you left, I get that there are, are all of these issues because there are the idea of precision medicine is overarching a very big idea, now I shouldn't say yeah. idea, it's not an idea. It's a really yeah. big movement towards actually lowering healthcare costs. If yeah, the exactly. if the piece of the pie is given back because we now have early access, we get yes. treated, we go into remission and good Grief. We don't have to use biologics for the next 40 years of our life. 40 years, 40 years. Right. Of costs. Yeah. Or whatever. You know what I'm saying? So yeah. take that piece of the pie out and guess what happens? More access to MRIs, more access to, you yes. know, the, the other things, because what's happening is you got to have a piece of the pie open.
2: <laughs> yeah. Well, and I think that what the term that a lot of these incredible speakers were using was this concept of early intervention. And that's exactly what you're hitting on is, okay, we need to take the big old slow monolithic bureaucratic boat that is the American healthcare system and start slowly steering it towards early intervention. Otherwise, because right now our healthcare system is based on a system of catch up. We are constantly catching up. To diseases that have progressed to the point where they need serious, multifaceted, multi-layered, multi-drug intervention, and where we need, like you said in the beginning, personalized medicine, where patients are now needing more specialists—you know, more—you know, Western and Eastern medical uh, health providers—and where patients are also losing trust in the healthcare system because, let's say, their first, second, third-line treatment isn't working. And so they're mm-hmm. saying, well, oh, why would I why would I believe in medicine? None of this works for me. So, and there's also a major misinformation issue in America too, which is also feeding distrust in the American healthcare system. So early intervention, like if you, let's say you take your kid into the pediatric doctor and part of getting their, you know, their routine blood work to check for whatever kidney function and liver function and a urine test. What if you could just grab some genes from your urine and say, you know, oh, oh, like we're going to monitor your kid for the next few years for this, which to some people may be really scary. But to me as a parent, I'd find that data really empowering. But the precision medicine is just slowly turning the ship, steering it towards early intervention, which like when you describe it like that it makes so much sense. It was like, why wasn't our healthcare system built like this? It, it's because it was from a historical perspective, we just didn't know what we didn't know. And medicine has come so, so far, just in my lifetime alone, in my mom's lifetime alone, in your lifetime alone, Mm -hmm. that we are now just breaching the point of saying, oh, we could actually really kind of flip how we do healthcare. And we're getting to the point where we could flip it towards early intervention. And that's what this conference, that's what these big thinkers, um, are not only proposing, but it's literally the research that they're doing. So yeah, I think the concept of early intervention is in, in precision medicine, I'd like to marry those two terms because and import that onto um, our audience because that's that's the takeaways. If you if someone asks you what precision medicine is, and say, oh, it's it's using genetics for early intervention so that you don't have to suffer through ineffective treatment. I don't know if you agree with that. I'm going to add to
1: that. I'm going to say that's part of the definition because I have, I have sort of the, this outline here as as we were going. So they talked about, we've talked about early, we've talked about, it can help with diagnosis. So it can help with that. And then let's say you've had these diseases for 20 years. You might be going, well, what the heck does precision medicine have to do for me then? Well, let me tell you. Mm -hmm. which treatment is going to work if you have exhausted all your treatments or you are just going over and over and you've already now have many comorbidities. Like me, that's me. (laughs) That's what happens when inflammation is uncontrolled. You start to develop these comorbidities, which obviously lead to more money because you've got more specialists. So if you can get access to some things that are going to help you, and I'm talking personalized as well. So let's say fatigue management or, or, you know, diet or anything, the whole holistic part of our, if you can get better matching to what's for you and you improve, maybe you can't ever achieve remission, but you can significantly improve your quality of life. Yeah. That's a huge win. So that's for the people no matter what level you are. And then the last point before we have been, I can't, we've been talking for 40. I know. Minutes. Yeah. <laughs> we
2: so can keep the last, we're just,
1: I know, we could just probably talk for two more hours, but um, okay. And then there was the fourth, which kind of the last part yes. of this, when we're talking about the, if depending whether you're new, newly diagnosed or not, is the pharmacogenomics. We also heard genetics, but it really is about, the study of genetics and the drug response. And that is a whole other layer now that we have to this, because it's not about diet, not about diagnosis. It's more about the measurement of how you're having good efficacy on this. And they even said that certain charities and hospitals, the payers or the insurance companies are actually using this kind of data in yeah. order to say, okay, that's research that we will go for. And that's also the kind of research that happens in databases, which we talked about earlier. So I didn't know mm-hmm. if you wanted to add anything about that in here or not.
2: Yeah, that was that's something that I think you don't really learn as a young person much about the structure of the American healthcare system in terms of payers and shareholders and who has stake in what and who has incentive to do what until you're like in your thirties and now you're doing your taxes and you own a house and you own a dog and you're getting all these bills and you're like, Oh, I'm really having to be an adult now. And I'm really having to understand. I'm and I'm, now I'm getting, you know, bills from insurance and I'm having to fight insurance and man, this is exhausting. And it's not until I feel like you leave adolescent or pediatric healthcare when you turn 18, Or maybe when you roll off your parents' health insurance at 23, 24, 25, that you're like, oh wow, like this, these trying all these medications or going to all these different doctors or trying medications and then failing them and having to then appeal for a new one. One, those costs are adding up, those visits are adding up, but two, I'm trying to work a full-time job. I'm trying to be individuate as a young adult and I am losing patience for finding a treatment that works for me, but I don't, uh, but I want to get better. And this is where I think the superhero that is pharmacogenetics can swing in and say, oh, well, if we can do a test on you that sequences your genome or your exome, which is a little larger than pharmacogenetics, but takes some blood, looks at some of your genetics and says, ah this is the drug that would work best for you. This is the one I think you should try next. It wasn't until I was really struggling with insurance companies myself that I was like, man, if only there was a way to determine what drug to do, to try next. And I'm actually literally at that crossroads right now with my health. We're deciding between to try Safnella or Anakinra. And my doctors straight up told me, which I appreciate, they said, we don't know which one to try. It's up to you. And they basically were like, you really might benefit from one and you really might benefit from the other. It's kind of up to you which one you want to try. And the mechanism of action is different and how often you get it is different. So that's a factor. But God, I wish right now I could access pharmacogenetics and just have someone you know, look at at my Genetics and say, oh, you really should try Sunello first. We think that might work for you based on our databases of information of patients who look like you who have benefited from this drug. And the second thing is, I don't know, 20 plus oral medications. And what pharmacogeneticists do, which is like a pharmacist, but who looks at the genetics of matching a patient to a medication, can also do is look at chronic patients like you and I. And say, "Ooh, this medication that's on your list, you know, really doesn't match up to what we're seeing in your genetics. Is what would be most efficacious for you? Let's try switching that for something else, uh, something comparable, but has a different mechanism of action, and see if that works better for you. So there's less trial and error, but it and but it's more advantageous advantageous to the shareholders and the payers to have you on." less medications overall too so that was a, a bit of an all-over answer but my takeaway was i was like why aren't we doing that why isn't this everywhere like the, why why are there not pharmacogeneticists at every hospital in every clinic this is a like can you even specialize in this as a specialty in med school they're pharmacists they can we can become a pharmacist but like can you become a pharmacogeneticist? I'm not even sure if that's a thing. But as a young person, I'm like, gosh, this would have saved me so much time, years of trial and error on medications. Yeah, so I'll toss it back to you. But that was kind of mm-hmm. my takeaways. I was like, I was like, I want this, please. <laughs> I would like this, please, right now. And
1: then, you know, the the one other component of that too, is I'm just looking at my notes over here from the conference and it, it, they also can, Mm -hmm. this also can test drug related toxicity. So, you know, I know as a person, I actually had Stevens-Johnson syndrome a few years ago from a rosacea medicine of all things, rubbing it into your, Skin And nobody knew that's what it was because it was, it wasn't an onset, like I'm taking an injection or something. It was a slow onset and not a lot, since it's rare anyway. And that what, if you don't know what that is, that is a severe, uh, can be deadly response to treatments. And it, for me, it came on really slow and that threw people off because they only know in medical school when it's completely severe and your whole like skin is all literally black and burning off. Well, I had patches of that. I had black blisters that kept falling off my my lips and then it would like reform within hours and then crust, up, turn black again and fall. Like, and I kept saying, I feel like my skin is burning and it's falling off in like black hunks. But nobody, it took three months for anyone to put it together. What was happening? It was really
2: bad. Yeah. And that was a huge issue. They were saying is that one of the fifth leading cause of death in America is toxicity response to treatments, treatments that we think we're giving people to help them are actually killing them. We keep putting them on it because we think one size fits all. And we say, Oh, you know, it just takes three months to adjust to it. The, your symptoms will, you know, abate. Your body's just getting used to it. But really it's killing them. And I was like, oh my God, that seems so easy to circumvent. But we're not, we're not yeah. there yet. Or it's not widely anyways, but apparently it's a leading cause of death in America. And yeah. I had no so idea. So that is sort of, so we've kind
1: of gone through the different Pillars, I like to call them of precision medicine, where you're talking about prevention or early detection and then diagnosis. And then we're talking about what we were just saying with the pharmacogenomics. And then also as far as just matching people with the right treatment at the right time. So there's so much that falls into it. Yeah. Uh, it's just a really, it, it's just the way research and science and our healthcare around the world is going, this is the direction, whether you like it or not, whether yeah. you, you know, and I don't mean you, our audience, cause I don't see many people not thinking this is a good way to go. It's what yeah. I know the people who do are the people like health, economic, persons who might be worried, oh, well, I, we can't treat for every individual person, but I'm going to wrap this up and, and, and kind of put a bow on it at the end here and say, that's exactly why we're telling you this, you as people living with these diseases, or if you're a loved one of someone or you're a doctor or you're a nurse, and please encourage people, go to AIarthritis.org for us anyway, and backslash research, sign up. You can also go to backslash advocacy if you want, because precision medicine is also a public policy issue and we're trying to get access and, Mm -hmm. you know, or just go to our website and click on the AR arthritis voices. That's where you can sign up for free. And we give you information on how to get involved in all of this. And if we can start to Really get more people involved in understanding you are everyone, but you're every times 10 times a hundred times a yeah. thousand is going to make the biggest difference in moving the needle. So that is extremely yeah. important. Catherine, I want you before we wrap up here to tell everyone where they could learn more about you and find you at.
2: Yeah. So I write a column for my university's newspaper, the Daily Trojan. It's called Chronically Catherine. It's like a Carrie Bradshaw's Sex in the City, but chronicling my life as a, as a chronically ill and disabled woman. So uh, you can find me at it's chronically Catherine, all one word. And uh, you can email me at chronicallycatherine at gmail.com. Send me a message. Drop me a personal, you know, a personal anecdote, and what's chat and share in miseries, and um, talk about advocacy. And then, uh, in terms of young patients area, you can find us at yp underscore area on Instagram, and also email us at, young area at gmail.com. And if you're a researcher out there, if you're a healthcare provider, if you are a nonprofit. We are young patient experts ready to provide testimony, ready to provide our perspective and and trained to be expert patient partners to help, like you said, move the needle with young patient treatment advocacy and dissemination of research. So reach out to us. We're here, we're available, and we're, we are we're ready, we're ready to go. We're ready to work with uh, you know, AR arthritis and, people who want to include the voices of young people in the healthcare space. It was so lovely to chat with you. Thank you so, so much for having me. Well, thank you so, so
1: much for us meeting a week ago.
2: <laughs> for I you. know. And shout out to Christine Carandang who, uh, who connected us, um, who also met Tiffany at ACR, I think That's a right. few years ago. It's a yeah. small community basically, um, so everyone who, you know, uses their voice and speaks up, I guarantee you, you're going to pretty quickly find somebody um, and it's going to come every two, every three, every four and, and our community will continue to grow. So absolutely. Thank you so much for having me and thanks yes. everyone listening.
1: Yes. Thank you, Catherine. And so for everyone listening, I uh, just wanted to remind you that here in 2022, we started what we're calling the 360 which is literally a spinoff of the name, AR Arthritis Voices 360. And that means the conversation really is not going to stop because we can take any of the comments, any of the topics that we put on the table here today in this episode and spin them off into as many platforms, as many ways of conversation that our little Brains can possibly even muster up. So we're going, I know, already have 360. It's on a few of the issues that we talked about today with step therapy, which is an American issue, probably health technology assessments, which is a global issue on value mm-hmm. assessments and and probably about biomarkers in general, there might be some spinoffs. You might even see, you hear us now, but you might see us on video because we recorded this on video. Uh, So, But you too at home can start getting involved in the 360s as well. So just if you have something to say, you want to respond and add your opinions or perspectives? Where are you from in the world? How does this impact you? Have you ever heard of precision medicine? Anything you want, you can email us at podcast at arthritis.org. You can also want to be anonymous. You can submit a rant. Oh, yes, you can just rant away. Just go to arthritis.org yes, back, backslash rant and you can just go off on whatever you want about this topic.
2: <laughs> oh arthritisorg slash
1: rant. Yes, you do not even have, you can leave your name if you want us to respond back, but you could just do it anonymously. And you know that there are people who understand you, who live with this, mm-hmm. reading it on the other end. And yeah. who knows, your rant might make a whole other show topic. You never know. It'll so, be
2: cathartic, you know, it'll be a little bit of a release there, for you. There
1: you go. You can also find us on social media at i f a i arthritis. all of our channels. And while you're on our website, Please consider a donation. Just click that big old red button. Oh, and I forgot. You'll also be able to pull up a chair at this table very soon at our new talk show website that is going to be up in about a month or two. Uh Yes, so this episode, all of the episodes that we load, will have a discussion thread underneath them so you can join the conversation that way as well. So that is it. That is a wrap. I just want to really encourage everyone to pull up a seat at the table with me and Catherine and everyone else out there in the community around the world, because only together can we change the stories of tomorrow. That's a wrap. Yay. That was
2: wonderful.
0: AI Arthritis Voices 360 is produced by the International Foundation for Autoimmune and Autoinflammatory Arthritis. Find us on the web at www. AIarthritis.org. Also, be sure to subscribe to this podcast and stay up to date on all the latest AI Arthritis news and events.